Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You Look, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that you can do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. In my personal mobile studio, my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. Today is Monday, April the 20th. This is episode, I think, 183 or 184, somewhere in that range of the Survival Podcast. And, you know, as always, I want to remind you, this show is my opinion. Now, at times I'll, I'll cite statistics, I'll give you a source, and in that point in time it is fact as far as I know. But most everything else is opinion, so you are encouraged even to disagree with me as long as you can back up your disagreement with a fact and as long as your disagreement is, in fact, factual. Uh, even if it's not, you're encouraged to disagree with me. You just may not get the response that you want. Um, the best way to do that is in the comments section on the blog. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on the episode that you have the uh, disagreement with or the agreement with, go to the comments section and uh, fill that in and tell speak your mind. I do try to answer almost all of the blog comments. I don't always do it, but I do my best. And it will be a great way because even if you don't get an answer from me, you'll probably get an answer from another listener. Uh, so it's uh, it's a feature that's available. It's not often, not as used as often, I think, as uh, as it should be, because I don't think everybody knows about it. A um, couple little things with some house cleaning. Today we're going to actually talk about why do you prep? Why do you do this stuff? I get that question all the time when I talk to people about survivalism, especially people that have never done anything to secure their own future. They just look at it and they go, this doesn't make sense to me. Why do you do this? And you might think that I'm going to talk a lot about preparation, uh, or I mean individual disaster when I do that. Not going to. It might be a little different than what you'd expect. And uh, it may, if you're a new person kind of wondering this yourself, help you figure out why it's important to dedicate some effort and resources to solidifying your own future. Before we do that, though, knocking out the rest of the house cleaning for today. One, I've started to get a lot of uh, emails from people saying that uh, they're seeing the article that the Fort Worth Star-Telegram did on modern survivalists in their local paper. If you've seen it in your local paper, please tell me by email the uh, the name of the paper that ran the story and where they're from, you know, like the so-and-so chronicle from so-and-so town, you know, whatever. And if they have an electronic version, send me a link. If they don't, just tell me you just saw an hard copy. I'm trying to put a press kit together, and I think that would help a lot uh, to me putting together a more thorough press kit about other people that have talked about the show, and it gives the show more credibility. So I appreciate every one of you that's let me know, and anybody that's seen it, please let me know, hey, I saw your story and what have you. Uh, there are other house cleaning. Region 5's big bug out, camp out, get together down near Goldway, Texas. Uh, come one, come all. That is going to happen over Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be really cool. Some good old boys throwing some lead down range, eating some barbecue hanging out, getting to know each other, and you know, developing friends in the survivalist community beyond the Internet. Uh, so please, anybody that wants to come is welcome. Link in today's show notes. Dirt Time 09 will be happening the last week of August near San Bernardino, California. It is going to be a week-long workshop with 14 survival experts, including myself, talking about everything from gardening and permaculture to making primitive weapons like bow-making and knife-making uh, to advanced uh, modern survival skills that include things like ultralight backpacking equipment and things like that. It's just going to be a phenomenal event. Uh, I don't know if they even have any more spaces available, but again, there will be a link in today's show notes to learn more about that. 
So I think that's enough house cleaning for today. Let's get on with the uh, the main topic of today's show, and let's start discussing, like, you know, just why do you do this? Well, you know, why do you take uh, extra steps like putting extra food away in your home? Why do you worry so much about debt? You know, why why can't you have a MasterCard with a balance on it of $5,000 like every, you know, quote-unquote normal American? Uh, why why do you think that it's important to have things like backup power sources? Why why do you do all these things that no one else does? I mean, no one else does them, and they all seem to be okay, don't they? And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about individual threats as we go through today's show because it is one of the things that's required to wake people up. I think people instantly recognize when you start talking about a global disease pandemic the reality of, hey, look, we could be asked to stay in place for 30 days or more, and we don't really have enough stuff in the house to do that. And, you know, it might not be an option. We may, and then, you know, people see things like Hurricane Katrina, and that's the one that everybody holds up as an example now because, well, there were people in New Orleans that didn't leave when they were told. But, you know, that kind of, to me, it mitigates the uh, storms that people did leave. People didn't, you know, sit on rooftops waiting for help. But they still lost everything. Ike, Rita, going back 12 years, Hurricane Andrew. And there's, you know, dozens of other storms. There was a storm last year that went through Florida. It did, it did almost no wind damage. Almost no wind damage at all. It was downgraded to a tropical storm almost immediately when it came over shore. But it moved very, very slowly in a north-south direction. And um, it dumped so much rain that it caused massive flooding and, and destroyed the lives of millions of people in Florida. And, and people just overlooked those because they didn't get sensationalized by the media. They still disrupted somebody's life. But the individual threats are nowhere near as important as understanding the number one reason why I prep. And you may or may not agree with this. It's, it's up to you to decide this, especially if you've been doing it for a while. But the main reason I don't prep is I don't want to be a slave. And that might sound radical, and that might sound extreme, but I absolutely mean I don't want to be anybody or any government or any company's slave. I don't want to be a slave to life in general. I don't want to be owned by someone else. And I don't want to be dependent upon somebody else to the point of being cared for by them. Because that, to me, is the very definition of slavery. Slavery is not always, in of itself, malevolent. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about it, if you own a dog, that dog is basically your slave. You probably don't just open the back door and let him run wherever he wants, and he comes and goes of his own free will. Even if you do... That's an illusion because you've fed him since he was a puppy, you've trained him, and he's been conditioned to see you as his provider. Now, there's nothing benevolent about this. That's my entire point. And then, you know, this dog, when, when he needs something, you provide it. If he needs something more than his day-to-day requirements, uh, you make it pretty life pretty easy for him. He probably gets to sleep in the house instead of outside like a wild dog. If he gets sick, you take him to the vet. You know, when I look at that life of a dog, I look at the life the government's trying to create for men, and even corporations are trying to create for mankind, and I say... 
that looks very similar to me. You know, we're going to have nationalized health care, so if you get sick, the government will take you to the vet and get you patched up. You know, unless they decide that you're not worth it anymore, that the treatment is too expensive, and then we'll have you put to sleep, basically. We do that by saying, you know, we'll deny you the treatment because there's only so much treatment available. It has to be allocated now because it comes from the government. Uh, the, you know, the dog needs his daily food supply, so you dump it into a bucket, into a, a dish out of a bag. Well, corporations give you credit cards so that you can go out and spend more money than you have. And when you look at the typical American household, and you say to yourself, how many systems is this household dependent on? And you say, well, first of all, obviously they're dependent on the electrical system. Uh, They're usually dependent on city water and city sewer. So to bring water in and take waste away, they have a dependency. Many of them heat with natural gas or use natural gas for other things other than just, you know, having electricity for that. So they're depending on a natural gas distribution system. And, and, And that's before we left the house. Now, odds are in most households in America today, if something breaks, they're dependent on a yellow pages system to call somebody up and come fix it for them because they have no idea how to fix anything that breaks in their own home anymore. You know, my dad and my grandfather, when someone wrong in the house, the last thing they were going to do was call somebody to come fix it for them unless they knew it was absolutely beyond their capabilities. You know, if it was putting electrical lines down uh, onto actual live power, neither one of them would do that. They didn't have the expertise and they went, electricity can kill you. They'd call an electrician in. But they'd run their own wiring from point A to point B and have the electrician come in and finish it. And that was the way that most of Americans lived. We did what we could ourselves, and then we relied on professionals to to take us to kind of another level or to take care of the things that were inherently dangerous that you had to have specialized training for. But today, people rely on either the government or some sort of service-oriented piece of our economy for just about everything within their homes. But let's get beyond that because, you know, every month we get this thing called the mortgage bill. We have to pay the mortgage bill. And the mortgage bill for the first 20 years is almost all interest. It takes almost 15 to 20 years for the average uh, 30-year mortgage to start actually having the majority of the payment actually pay for the house. So, you know, you're dependent on an economic system, which is your job, to pay the mortgage bill. You're completely dependent on it. Lose your job for three months. Do you still own your home? Hopefully the answer is yes, but for many Americans, sadly, it's no. That's where all these foreclosures have come from. We can only blame subprime lending and all that other stuff for, for so long. What it really comes down to is if people buy a home and they have income and they can pay for it, they generally do so. They don't generally stockpile cash and not pay for their house. But when they lose the income, it's soon after that that they end up losing the house. So there's that economic system there. Of course, they have to get to that job every day, so... There's an energy system, at least an oil distribution, gasoline distribution system that they're dependent on. That system has many systems within itself. You have to explore for the oil. You have to pump the oil. You have to refine the oil. You have to distribute the you know, refined gasoline, and then you have to go pay for it, which then makes your energy system dependent on the same economic system that your mortgage system is dependent on. Don't worry. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I'm trying to make a point here because you got to eat. So now you're dependent on a food distribution system. But if we take one item in that food distribution system, let's say a cucumber from Argentina during the time of year where cucumbers don't really grow well in the United States, 
the cucumber is dependent on the oil distribution system because there has to be fuel to power the ship or the plane that brings it here. It's dependent upon the agricultural system in Argentina. It's dependent on a continued good relationship between the Argentine and the United States government. All right. Once it gets here, it's dependent upon a distribution system to get it from its point of receiving, its shipping point of receiving, to the store where you go buy it. Then you're still dependent on your gas distribution system, your energy system, to drive your car to the grocery store. You're dependent on your economic system to be able to purchase the cucumber. And you might say, well, what's wrong with all this? Well, there's nothing wrong with it as long as you're not 100% dependent on all of this. Because if you think about it, it does, what I started out with, make you a slave. You are absolutely enslaved to these systems. And I'll explain it to you very simply. If anywhere in the systems we cut one of them off, let's say we cut off the refining system, so the oil can be pumped, but it gets to the refineries, it doesn't get refined, and either gas becomes unavailable or it drives it to a point where we're paying $15 a gallon. Don't say that'll never happen, because you know it will. Sooner or later, we're going to pay $15 a gallon for gasoline. And you can't afford it anymore. Now you can't drive to the store to buy the cucumber. Of course, the cucumber's price is going to go up because it's dependent on the gasoline system as well. Now, if it's completely cut off, it can't get here anymore. Now we have to feed ourselves in America. Surely that's not a problem, but remember last week I did a show and told you America is a net importer of food. And what it all comes down to, though, is dependence. And when you're dependent on somebody or something, you are a slave to it. Look at debt. The average American household today has over $20,000 in unsecured credit card debt. $20,000. To pay that off will require most of them at minimum payments about 15 years. Of course, during that time, they're not paying it off. They're increasing it anyway. So they'll end up in debt with credit cards. Most people will because they'll never change their patterns. They'll end up with credit card debt when they're retiring. It'll be even bigger than it is today. And at that point, that number might be fifty dollars or $60,000. Enough to buy a, not a great, but a decent home today if you look hard enough. You have to really think about that. And what makes us have that credit card debt? Well, it's slavery to corporations because we look at all the shiny things that Bob our neighbor has and Tom our neighbor has, and we want them too. Home Depot runs an advertisement about how great their new tractors are. And we look at that shiny tractor, and it's only $14 a month on our Home Depot credit card. So we go out and buy one to mow our third of an acre of grass with a freaking tractor. And you know what? Even if you didn't want to, you know, you know, you wanted it to be easier, you could have it probably mowed by a service for about three to four years before you paid for the tractor without any fuel costs. So even if you didn't want to do it yourself or you wanted it to be a lot easier than pushing a mower, the return of investment is just insane in the wrong direction, negative ROI. And you're a slave. And now you also have the debt that goes with it. Long after the tractor's not shiny anymore and the entire concept of riding around like a farmer on your third of an acre of grass that doesn't do anything for you has worn off and it just doesn't seem that much fun anymore. You're sitting on a debt for $3,400 to Home Depot still. And you're wondering, how do I owe $3,400 to Home Depot? I only paid $2,800 for the tractor. I don't understand. And then you're making a call to somebody like Dave Ramsey going, help me get out of this debt. And he tells you the only thing you can do is pay it off. But you're a slave to that debt. And that's my number one reason. I don't want to be a slave. So when I store food, 
when I grow a garden, when I pay credit card debt off, and my credit card debt is gone, I have zero. And I'm not going to pretend, you know, I'm the Wyatt's Jack Spearco and I always knew better. Folks, I had over $20,000 in credit card debt at one time. Over $20,000. We pay, we just looked at it one day and said, this has got to go. we got to get rid of this. We paid it down as fast as we could, as expediently as we could, as efficiently as we could. And then we sat back and we looked at it and we went, never again will this ever happen to us, ever. We will never use a credit card again, period. And then we've been liberated from at least that piece of the system. And we're working toward paying off our, you know, our retreat property up in Arkansas because that's the one we plan on actually living in long term. So we want to free ourselves from that mortgage system. When we grow a garden, we want to free ourselves from all those systems that bring that cucumber to us from Argentina. And we want to, you know, reestablish a, a, a system in the United States where we can feed ourselves. Where we don't import more food than we export. Where if we had to, we could survive on our own. Hopefully we never do, but I don't want to be dependent upon others. Because then they get to dictate the decisions you make in your life. Before I leave slavery and go on to some other points, think about that one statement just for a second. When you're dependent upon somebody else or something else, they get to dictate how you make decisions in your life. That's why I call it slavery. In other words, there's plenty of times that countries in the Middle East have done things that the United States would have preferred to have said, you know what, piss off. We don't, we don't want to deal with you anymore. But we've had to deal with them because we're dependent upon their oil. If you've ever borrowed money from a family member that had to be repaid, you probably have experienced it on a microcosmic level where that that relative was like, what are you doing? Why are you still doing this? Why don't you change? You know, I gave you money. I want the money back. And they had an ability to pull some strings because you became indebted to them until you repaid it. If you look at the big corporations that we bailed out, which I think is a mistake, but once they took the bailout money, now they have to deal with public scrutiny. Now they have to deal with the, the government going, hey, how much money are you paying that guy in a bonus? Why? Because they took the money. They became a slave. So think about the fact that anything you're dependent upon can pull a string and make you change your action and your activity levels. When gas prices rose last summer and they were over $4 a gallon and you were dependent upon the gasoline system, and I'm not saying I'm not dependent on that system, but if you're 100% dependent on that system, did it make you make changes and choices you would have preferred not to make? When the price goes back up, is it going to continue to do that to you again? And if so, then you have some level of slavery to it. So the reason we prep is to, uh, it's like, don't let a guy weasel into a non-lane. Um, that'll probably be my only auto rant today. I'm over halfway there, and it's been a pretty good trip. Um, we're dependent upon it, right? So let's move on to the next reason that I prep. As I started kind of organizing my preparations, again, this is something that I, you know, I did all through my childhood without even thinking about it because it was just how we lived. And then in time, uh, I began to bring my family back to the old ways that my grandfather taught me. And, and then I began to, like, take all these modern uh, efficiencies that we have and refine my method of prepping to fit my lifestyle. And as I did that, as I started thinking about, well, you know, one of the things we need to do is make sure that we have at least, you know, initially we wanted two months worth of food put away. 
So we'll do that. And uh, we want to make sure we have some cash on hand in our strong box. So we'll go to the bank, pull a couple thousand dollars out, lock it away, hidden in a place in our home where it's protected from fire and theft. And uh, then the next thing that we need to do is we need to make sure uh, that we're being just as efficient as we can possibly be with our electricity. So, you know, we're not going to go putting solar panels on a house that we plan to sell in less than two years, but we sure as heck can go through and make sure that we're not wasting money. And I started doing all these things, and we're going to expand our garden and produce more food, and we're going to start learning to, uh, really for me, relearning methods of preserving that food so that I can go out and plant a garden that will produce way more than we can eat in the summer and can and freeze and jar and, and dehydrate food and put that away for winter so that we're also producing our own food and we're contributing to our storage from our own production. So I started putting all of these systems together. One day it dawned on me, there is no downside. Because that's one of the things that as a business person I've always looked at. What is the downside? What is the downside to doing this? I have a choice right now. I can either buy some extra food or I can keep the cash. Or I can go buy something shiny with it. If I buy the food, what is the potential for regret? What is the downside? And I went, you know what? There isn't one. And I started saying, well, with stored food, what does that address? And it's where I started developing the concept of the commonality of disaster. And I realized that if we lost a job, the stored food was just as useful to us as if we had a major shit-hit-the-fan event. That either way, it was food that was already procured, it was already there, it would provide for us, and there was no downside. So I said, well, what's the downside of my garden? Well, when somebody comes to look at my house to buy in a couple of years, having a well-tended garden that looks beautiful and produces food should increase the property value. Even if a person doesn't like food, they can replace all of my vegetables with flowers, and they'll have a beautiful garden. So I've increased the value of my home. Hmm, what else have I done? I'm improving the health of my family because we're not eating crap food from the grocery store. And if something goes wrong, we have some level of production capacity. That production capacity is useful to me if, you know, the shit really hits the fan as long as it's not something that makes us leave. As long as we can stay put, we have the food and the production capability here. We have seeds in reserve. So even if we couldn't buy seeds, we can continue to produce for years and years and years with what we have. Doesn't seem to have a downside. My investment is a few hundred dollars for topsoil and some timbers. Doesn't seem like that big of an investment for that kind of a return. So I've got the improved value to my home and less dependence on the existing systems. Huh. No downside to gardening either. I uh, don't own a backup generator yet, other than a really little one, and I'm thinking about buying a bigger one. It's going to be my next big investment is a really good, solid uh, backup generator investment. And... Uh, you know, when I have that in place, what's the downside of a backup generator? It just sits there. Sure, it costs some money, but it costs less than the interest payments on most people's credit cards for two or three months. And I don't have that, so I'm free to go out and purchase uh, that generator. So what's the downside for me with a backup generator? And I just realized there's, there's not much of a downside to a backup generator. Maybe it takes up some space that something else could be in. requires me to be a little bit more organized, but it's useful. And then I think, well, what are the upsides? Well, the upside of a backup generator is uh, if we have major power rolling brownouts again this year, I have a means of, of uh, power. If uh, we have a major storm that takes out the electricity, I have a means to continue to have power. 
doesn't seem like there's much of a downside to that. As I went through just about everything that we do to prep, being able to reload my own ammunition. Have you looked at the price of ammunition lately? You know, reloading has always helped you save money, but today, reloading is is, is almost the only way people can afford to shoot anymore. But I already have stockpiled the, the, the bullets, the powder, the primers, the cases, and the equipment to reload for, you know, as long as I need to, really. At least for the conceivable, you know, short-term future, I, I don't really need to go to the store to buy ammunition for any caliber that I have. What's the downside? Can't see that there is one. Having an evacuation plan so that my family knows what to do if we have to leave. Everybody has a route to go on. Everybody has a job to do. Everybody has a a list of people to contact. Everybody knows to get in touch with each other. Everybody knows what to say. Everybody knows who's in in control and who has authority over what. We know where to, you know, who grabs the dogs, who grabs the cats, where we're going, when we're going to get there. What's the downside to that? It took a couple days to put it together. Once we put it together, it's done. It's just something we occasionally look at and update and figure out, is there anything we need to add to it? And we just keep some printed out materials. What's the downside? Well, the upside is we don't worry about it. When we hear something bad going on that may require us to leave, we're not enthusiastic. We're not happy. We're not the way we get painted by some people in the media that we're praying for the end or hiding in the basement. But we have a sense of peace because we know if this comes, we're going to grab this, this, and this, and we're going to go. We know where we're going to go to. We know how we're going to get there. There's no downside to it. So that's one of the biggest reasons that I live this lifestyle now. Because I realize there's no downside. I can't find one. I've looked for one. The uh, the entrepreneur in me, the businessman in me, the, the person that looks at efficiencies and profit margins and decides whether or not a business unit is worth keeping or getting rid of, that decides whether an expenditure is valid or not, goes, you got to find you got to find the inefficiencies here. And I might find some inefficiencies and I might improve what we're doing, but I never have found a downside. Now, if you think the downside is that some people will look at you like you're a little bit wacky, yeah, okay. But you know what they say about trying to please everybody and, uh, you know, umbrellas and soaking wet asses, all right? And that's how I feel about that. I don't care if somebody thinks I'm a little wacky because I don't care what you do. Somebody thinks you're wacky, too. I look at one of my next-door neighbors, and I look at their Porsche and their two really nice cars, and I look at their expensive little dog. they got a dog that's worth about 1000 bucks, right? Or at least he cost, like I say, he's worth $1,000. He, he cost $1,000. And uh, I just look at the way they live their lives in this typical Americana, and, and I think about the one time that I said to the guy, hey, man, why don't you and your wife go out with my wife and I, and we'll go out and have a couple margaritas over at El Arroyo. There's a band on the patio. Let's go hang out for an evening. And he said, yeah, we really can't afford to do that this week. <laughs> yeah, maybe you didn't have a Lexus SUV and a Porsche, right? And you're living in my neighborhood with those kind of cars and a $1,000 dog. You could afford some taco chips and a margarita or two. And I almost I almost said, hey, man, tonight's on us. Come with us. Because I wanted to get to know my neighbors, right? And then I thought about it and went, no, no, this guy needs to deal with this problem until he figures out what to do with it. Because I actually do have the answer, but it's not an answer he's going to be ready to hear until uh, until he asks the question. He hasn't asked the question yet, so I haven't volunteered the answer yet. So what's another reason that we prep, that we uh, we make sure 
that uh, we're, we're ready for something to go wrong. And I think that's simply because we live in a reality where sometimes things do go wrong. And I want you to think of prepping not so much as, you know, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? Think of it as, what if anybody happens? Uh, consider an analogy to life insurance. It's something that I've talked to a lot of people about uh, quite often, actually. I, I've discussed it with people. You know, let's think about what if something goes wrong. And uh, they say, well, you know, what could go wrong? And we talk about any type of thing, like, oh, I don't know, getting a, a pandemic, uh, you know, a major weather event, uh, solar storms, a terrorist attack, electrical grid hack. There's just so many things that we can look at and say to ourselves, well, these are all the different things that could go wrong. And to take that analogy to life insurance, that's that's a life insurance salesman's technique. You know, you got Jim and Tina, and they're sitting in a table in front of you, and you go, Jim, on the way home from work today, uh, you get in a car wreck and you get killed. Tina, what do you do now? And usually what happens when an insurance salesman tries to do that is, is Jim tries to speak. And the insurance salesman goes, and this is an old sales technique for insurance, folks, and I don't like it. I'm just familiar with it. But Jim, you know, this insurance salesman says to Jim, Jim, I'm sorry, but you're dead. You can't talk. I want to hear from Tina. What do you do now? And it puts them in touch with the reality. And that's usually used on young couples that haven't done anything to put any kind of insurance in place. And it's bad because of how much of a hard sell it is. But in some ways it's good because it does make people think. When we talk about prepping and we go through the individual threats, we're kind of doing the same thing. We're waking people up to reality. But think about the more mature couple, the 35, 40-year-old couple, couple kids in school, you know, maybe... You know, kid six years old, a kid eight years old, a kid ten years old, two, three kids, uh, dogs, cats, the whole nine yards. Usually they don't have to be sold life insurance. They kind of look around between the two of them, and they're, they're mature enough to go, you know what, honey, both of us make a good salary. If one of us isn't here anymore, we're going to have a real problem. And they go, out and sh- they go out and shop for insurance. Nobody sells it to them. They find the best insurance they can for their needs for the lowest price that they can find, and they purchase it. And then they say, okay, now if something happens, we're covered. And then they hope nothing ever goes wrong. Well, that's a lot like prepping. And what I mean by that is when they buy that insurance, they don't sit there and go, well, we're buying one kind of insurance in case you die in a car wreck, and we're buying another kind of insurance in case you die in a plane wreck. But what if you get sick and die? We need a different kind of insurance for that. They insure simply against the death. And they don't really look at, well, what one thing is going to cause the death? They just look at it, so they look at it and they just say, one of us could die, so we buy insurance, and that's that, and now we're prepared if it happens. We're not ready, we're just prepared, because nobody wants this to happen. So, you know, how does that relate to prepping? Is that, well, are we going to have a solar storm take down our electrical grid or a cyber hacker take down our electrical grid? Doesn't really matter, does it? It just means it matters that the grid is vulnerable. Are we going to have our house destroyed by um, a massive hurricane or a massive tornado? Doesn't really matter. All that matters is that 
be it one of those things or something as specific as fire, our house could be destroyed. So we have to be prepared for the fact that we could lose our home. Do you know? So all of the things that we do to prep are really about that some of these systems of support could go away someday for any reason whatsoever. And if they do, what are we going to do to make sure that we can deal without them being there? So the individual threat is much less important to understanding and identifying your systems of weakness. And again, I would say to you on the concept of, you know, there is no downside is what is the downside to looking at your life and your lifestyle and saying, where am I the weakest? Where, where am I absolutely the weakest? And when you, when you look at that, you go, okay, well, the weakest point in our household right now is the fact that we're in debt. Then you take that approach and you go after it first. The weakest approach is we couldn't make it two weeks. Just couldn't make it two weeks. We tried. We, we, if we did that, uh, we would, uh, we, we, you know, we, we would never get through those two weeks. Well, then it's making sure you can get through two weeks. So whatever it ends up being is the weak point. That's where you start. So that's how you start that planning process. But why do you do it? You do it because the weak points exist. Because they're there. Because every family in America has things that make them weak. That make them weak to the predator that is everything from life to government to debt. So what's the biggest reason that we prep, though? No one else is going to do it for us. If I could say one thing today for a person that's maybe been listening to the show because you heard about it in the media or a friend told you about it, you're not totally sold on this yet, this is the one. This is the most important thing that you'll ever understand about life in general. Whether it has anything to do with survivalism or not, doesn't matter. Why must you do these things? Because no one else will. You are responsible for yourself. You are responsible for the people that you pledge your life to. Your son, your daughter, your wife, possibly your parents, your grandchildren. Whomever you pledge, I will protect and defend you. You are responsible for them more than any other human being on the planet. More than the President, more than the Congress, more than the Senate more than FEMA, more than anybody else. It's your responsibility because you chose it. Chief in that responsibility is to protect yourself. People always say, well, I'll give my life to defend my wife, or I'll give my life to defend my children. I understand that. I would too. But in the best circumstance, you should be preserving your life so that you could defend your family. Once you're dead... It's a one-shot and done. It's over with. It's gone. There is no more. Now, I, I want you to understand that. You, you, I don't care if you, you, know, you, you, die, you jump in front of a bullet so that your son is not shot, or your wife is not shot, or your daughter is not shot. Great. You did it. Now you're dead. What's going to stop the second one? What's going to stop the next threat now that you're not there? So surviving as an individual is extremely important. We don't always win that battle. Sometimes sometimes life wins that battle. Sometimes that Mack truck that hits you doesn't care that you're a survivalist. You're like anybody else. And that, that metal wrapped around your body takes you away. 
So you got to make sure that your family knows what to do if you're not there. And you've insured against that too, both financially and procedurally as well. You need to make sure that you're prepared to deal with that and that those people are prepared to deal with the situation where you might not be there. But what it comes down to is you're the only one that can. When you go home today and you look at your spouse and you think, God, I love them so much. You look at your children and you think, God, I love them so much. What you have to realize is it is up to you to take care of them. If you think of your parents and you go, they're totally exposed, but if something really goes wrong, I can go get them and bring them in with us and I can take care of them and I will. You're the only one that's going to do it. FEMA's not going to do it. Barack Obama's not going to do it. No one is going to do it. No one is going to take care of them but you. And that's the biggest reason you should prep. This has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.